This is the word of the Lord from Leviticus 19, 1 through 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. You are to keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord, sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It is to be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day, but what remains on the third day must be burned. If any is eaten on the third day, it is a repulsive thing. It will not be accepted. Anyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not act deceptively or lie to one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the Lord your God. I am the Lord. All right, church family. Oh, Leviticus 19. Uh, again, if you're new and snuck in, I've met you. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going through the often neglected and often misunderstood and often misrepresented book of Leviticus. Why? Because we're crazy. No, because, uh, because we are convinced that in every page of Scripture, the goodness of the Lord is to be found. And that includes even... Uh, things that are kind of strange sounding to us, like Leviticus. Um, real quickly before I dive in, I just want to uh, push pause and make a little bit of an invitation. Uh, as we're settling back into the rhythms and the routine of fall, maybe for those of you with kids, your kids are back in school, or maybe for them, so, uh, some of you, you were traveling over the summer and those vacations and travelings are done, I just want to make a pitch, particularly for any of you who happen to be newer to the church, to get involved in serving on a Sunday. You know, uh, there's a joke that kind of goes around about churches sometimes. It's called the 80-20 rule. Has anyone ever heard of the 80-20 rule? Where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And the reality is we as a church have been really blessed. We don't have that happening. But I would say over the last few months into the summer and just all of the disruptions, even going back to 2020 and all of that, We have an incredibly faithful and committed group of volunteers who serve our church so faithfully every week, you know, making coffee so that Myung can stay awake while I'm preaching because of his sleep-deprived newbornness, or uh, downstairs serving our children's ministry so that those kids can hear the message of the gospel in an age-appropriate way and not be up here for, uh, you know, last Leviticus 18 or 15 or some of those other awkward ones or or whatever. So I just want to make an appeal to you. First of all, uh, thank those who are serving but number two, get involved. In fact, I wonder if we could do this. I did this a few months ago and it really freaked out the kids ministry volunteers downstairs. But I wonder if we could actually say thank you to them by doing like a stadium style, all of us kind of stomping our feet at once so that the lights seem like they're going to fall out of the ceiling. You guys with me on that? Can we say thank you to our kids ministry volunteers? Ready? Three, two, one, go. That's good. All right. They're going to come up here and say, what in the world were you guys doing? 
Um, but would love for you to get involved in our children's ministry team. I know that our student ministry has recently kicked back off, and we're looking for, in particular, some female leaders who would love to disciple our younger women in the faith, uh, as well as production. If you think you could help run some slides or run the soundboard on occasion, we can train you, we can teach you, but there's always room uh, for more to get involved. And so I just want to invite you, get involved in the church, especially, again, if you happen to be new, maybe you come in and you're like, man, this church just seems perfect, like they've got it all together. That was, sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts, friends, okay? But you might kind of think, oh, they've, they've got all these things handled or whatever, and I'm just telling you, there's a really faithful group of people that are caring a lot, and there's always room for you to come in and help come alongside and serve the body of Christ. As we serve one another, we're actually serving the Lord Jesus, amen? So with that said, Leviticus 19, we're in this kind of final section of Leviticus that is known as the holiness code, See, God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. He set up his presence in this tent of meeting. He showed up in glory and he said, I want to be with you. And even though you're sinful and even though you are unclean and impure, I'm going to make it possible for you to draw near to me. So there's sacrifices that forgive our sins. And there's a priesthood that helps teach the people how to draw near to God. And there's ritual washings to be washed from the things that, that have the residue of death on them. And then God says, come on, come near to me. And they had this big celebration called the Day of Atonement, and that was in Leviticus chapter 16. But then after Leviticus 16, God says, in fact, it's not just that I want you to draw near to me, I actually want to send my holiness out into every single area of your life and really throughout the entire camp, that God's holiness is not confined to a tent of meeting, but God's holiness really is going to go into all aspects of our life. And that's what we're talking about today, a life of holiness, a life of of holiness. And so I know we've prayed. Let's pray again because I need help from the Lord and we all need hearts to receive what he wants to say to us. So Lord, would you help me to teach with clarity and with, with love that which uh, you have put on my heart to share? Lord, would you guard my words and, and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word? And Lord, for every single one of us, I pray you'd help us to contemplate today and to think, Lord, what would it look like for your holiness to really permeate every single aspect of our lives, every area of our lives, even things that seem ordinary or mundane. Lord, we want to, uh, we want to be shaped by your holiness. We want, to, we want to look like our Father in heaven. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, can you think back to when you were a kid? Some of you kids can, don't have to think back very far. Some of you have to think back a long ways to when you were a kid and you went to somebody else's house, like maybe for a play date, maybe to spend the night, maybe to go have dinner with another family. Okay, just pause, think back. You think back to a specific friend. When you got there and you're hanging out and you're spending time and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, they do things differently than my family does. Can you remember that feeling? Uh, I have some very good friends. I'm still friends with them to this day. Uh, identical twins. And I first went over to their house, I think fourth grade. And we went and we sat down for dinner and they served something at this dinner that I have actually come to find out later is both an abomination in Leviticus and a war crime, uh, according to the Geneva Convention, uh, powdered milk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Powdered milk. Look, if you're a powdered milk drinker, I'm sorry. I love you. No judgment, but just repent. My goodness. And I'm sitting there with him like, oh, well, this family, 
the word that I would use to describe this family now is bad taste, okay? Because it was just, it was just awful. It was so terribly bad. Uh, so that was one experience I can remember. I had another friend. Uh, he was on my basketball team. And I know what you're thinking. Aaron, you don't look particularly tall or athletic. And you're right. But in sixth grade, I was convinced that I was going to play in the NBA. So I joined a basketball team. My dad's like, dude, you're f- I'm 5'9". You're probably going to be 5'9". You're not playing in the NBA. I was like, don't you tell me what I can't do because I was watching Disney movies and stuff. But anyways, I went to this, I went to this basketball friend's house. And I opened the fridge because, like, you know, we're getting snacks or whatever. And I opened the fridge and the, literally, I'm not joking, the only thing they had in their fridge was soda pop. And I was like, this is awesome because this is the only caloric intake I need as a sixth grader. I found out that this family never cooked a meal at home, not once. Every single meal they ate out, they either went through drive through they got takeout, or they went and sat down at a restaurant. And so I thought, well, this family is rich, because my dad's always saying, no, we can't just go out to lunch every time that you want to or go to, you know, whatever. So I thought, oh, this family's rich. So I had this, these words that I would associate with different families based on different behaviors and activities that I saw from them. By the way, if you came over to our family uh, and had dinner with our house, you'd leave and you'd go, wow, that family is loud, okay? <laughs> now, when you remember that God has saved his people, he's brought them into a family. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to be this family together. There is one word that rises above every other word that we are to use to describe the family of God. What is God's family like? What is God's family at least supposed to be like? What's the word, Sound City? I'm not trying to trick you. Holy. We heard it in the first verse of our scripture reading today. Leviticus 19, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses. You need to speak to the entire community, the entire Israelite community, and tell them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we have seen this sentiment uh, spoken all throughout the pages of Leviticus that God says, Here's what I'm like I'm holy. And I want to have a people who is near to me, and you also will be holy. The big idea for today is very simple to say. It's actually relatively simple to understand, but boy, is it difficult to live out. It's this. God's family is defined by holiness. So look around the room for a minute. Look around. If you're joining us on the live stream, look around your living room right now. Holy people. I had a... uh, (laughs) I had a... Uh, uh, a massage on Friday, and uh, I met the guy for the first time, and, and he's working on an injury I've got on my neck and my shoulder, and he goes, what do you do for work? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, I am blessed today. I get to massage a holy man. <laughs> and I laughed so hard to myself, and I said, only, only because God has made me holy. <laughs> and then I proceeded to cry because it hurt really bad. <laughs> Now, here's what I want to do. I want to unpack this idea of holiness because it's one of those words that gets thrown around in church. It gets used a lot in the Bible. But I fear that sometimes we don't have a really good understanding of what it means to be a holy family. So I'm going to talk about the what, like what holiness is, how we go about holiness, and then why, the why of holiness, the heart behind it, okay? The what, the how, and the why. Let's start with the what, holiness. I'm going to use some is and is nots here to help you understand what holiness is. First of all, holiness is not better than you superiority. In our culture, when you use the word holy, 
It is very common for people to assume this holier than thou. Anybody heard that phrase? Holier than thou. As though to pursue a life of holiness means I have to look down on somebody else to feel superior to them, to judge them for their shortcomings while ignoring my own own shortcomings. Friends, nothing could be further from a biblical definition of what holiness is. And we have to fight to put that to death. That is not what holiness is. Not for us, not for God. Holiness is the baseline definition. It's being set apart or different or distinct or unique. That's what holiness is. So when we say set apart or different, what we mean is it's not common. There are things that are common, right? When the Lord created uh, the heavens and the earth at the beginning, he made six days that are just regular old days. But the seventh day, he, he set it apart. He says, this day is going to be holy. This one's going to be special. You're not going to do your regular work. You're going to rest. You're going to delight. You're going to uh, practice Sabbath rest. And so it's this unique, special day. I've also used this analogy before too. Some of you, you know, you have your regular dishes that you use every day for your regular meals, but, but every now and again, when it's a special day, right, a holiday, you pull out the holy dishes. And you serve, you know, it's, oh, it's, what, mom, why are you getting out the, the special dishes? Well, because it's Bastille Day or whatever you celebrate in your house, right? It's the NFL draft starts today. We're going to get out the holy dishes, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever it might be. This is, this is this special time. It is set apart. It's distinct. It's unique. Now, holiness is defined by God himself. See, one of the other things that happens with holiness is that man, you know, humans like to come along and say, here's the checklist of things to follow. Do this, don't do that. If you follow our church's customs, if you follow our man-made rules and man-made regulations, then you will be holy. Friends, it is God himself who says what is or isn't holy. And in fact, it is God himself who is distinct, set apart, special, unique. There's nothing or no one like our God. Words could not capture, words could not uh, describe our God. Amen? So he is the definition of holiness. Not a preacher, not a list of rules, not a church culture, not a nation. God himself defines what holiness is or isn't. Now here's a beautiful thing about holiness. Holiness belongs to God, but it is shared by God. God delights in sharing his holiness with his people. It is not enough for God to say, well, I'm holy. He says, I want you to be holy. And, and, and the idea there is that like the closer we get to God, the more we'll be able to take on his characteristics, his likeness, his holiness. Even think about like Moses, when he went up to the top of the mountain on Mount Sinai, when he came back down from the mountain, what does it say? He was, he was shining, he was glowing. He had been in such close proximity to God that he had even taken on the radiance of God's holiness, the radiance of God's splendor. So God wants to make us holy. God wants to share that holiness with us. And lastly, God wants not only to share his holiness with us, but he wants his holiness to expand everywhere, to every conceivable facet of life, to every corner of the globe. There's a a prophecy back in the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, before Jesus came. Isaiah was predicting, he was saying, when the Messiah comes, 
He says, the people are no longer going to harm or destroy each other. There's no more fighting, no more that selfishness, no more war, no more bloodshed and violence. He goes, when they, when the Messiah comes, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain for, he says, the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Question for you. Have you ever been in the ocean? How full of water is it? Like entirely, right? What God is saying here is he says, look, my holy mountain, this place where I dwell in perfect holiness is gonna expand out until the entire world is my holy dwelling place. So God is on a mission to expand his holiness, to share it with those whom he loves, to transform us out of a state of unholiness or commonness or or even sin to make us look like him, act like him, think like him, feel like him. That is what God is doing. So that's the what of holiness. Not a superiority, not a better than you, but becoming more like God because he has drawn us close to himself. So you might say, okay, that's great. I get that conceptually. What would it look like for me to actually live a holy life? What would it look like for me to have that holiness of God playing out in every aspect of my life. And friends, that's what Leviticus 19 starts to open the door to. Now, if you've read Leviticus 19, or if you're even just paying attention a little bit during our scripture reading, Leviticus 19 is a laundry list. It is an absolute laundry list of so many seemingly disconnected things It touches on, I actually made a little word cloud image, if we could throw that up on the screen. Uh, I identified at least 23 different um, aspects of life that are touched on by Leviticus 19. Everything from honoring your parents, remembering the Sabbath, don't worship idols, uh, how to be charitable to the poor, work, like how do you go about your work, thieving, lying, oaths, unfair labor practices, respect for people with disabilities, legal justice, slander, grudges, revenge, agriculture, planting trees. It goes literally from grudges to planting trees in the same chapter. Uh, uh, Sexual sin, patience, eating or drinking blood, false spirituality, personal appearance, including haircuts and tattoos. And yes, I do recognize the irony of me wearing a long sleeve shirt on the Sunday when I'm preaching about the tattoo verse. I apologize, it was not on purpose. Prostitution, cleaning the tabernacle, immigrant care, and honest business practices. Okay, here's here's where I want us to start, because I need you to put on your thinking cap for a minute here. Leviticus, and really the whole Torah, and really the whole Bible, could not actually address every conceivable area of life, could it? Could you write a book big enough. Could you write a set of rules to follow or regulations to follow? Could you write something big enough that would address every single possible area of life? Could you? The answer is no. As a pastor, this is a very common question. People come up to me and say, I'm dealing with such and such a situation. What does the Bible teach about that? Now, I don't claim to have the Bible memorized or know everything, but man, there are, it's a regular occurrence where I'm like, that is really strange. I had one two weeks ago 
uh, I think two, three weeks ago when I was talking about eating blood. I got a question after the 9 a.m. service. I'm not going to tell you what the question was, but it absolutely stumped me. I was like, hmm, huh, that's a weird question. I feel slightly gross inside now. Like, just like the question, like, you could not ever write a list long enough to address every possible situation with your marriage, your parenting, your work, all of those sorts of things. And so we need to understand that the book of Leviticus and chapter 19 is offering us examples of the kinds of things that we might interact with where God's holiness wants to break through. The other thing we have to remember is that holiness, distinctness, set-apartness is going to look different in different cultures. In our culture, we are dealing with artificial intelligence and medical technology and things that the ancient Semitic people of 3,500 years ago had no clue about. They didn't know about frozen embryos and in vitro fertilization. They didn't have verses, there's no Bible verses about those types of things because the Bible was given to us in a very ancient culture. And so while we look at these commandments, we, we can't just automatically assume copy, paste. We have to look underneath. What's, what's God saying to this culture? What is he saying by way of principle? And what does it mean for me and my culture to live out this commandment? You guys tracking with me? We can't just look at Leviticus 19 and says, well, it doesn't say don't cut your hair short on the side. So any of you men with a fade haircut, sinners, you know, what's it actually saying? What's, what's behind that commandment? So I want to walk us through kind of three phases on this. It's going to take a minute, okay? If you're taking notes, loosen up your wrists. We're going to walk through a few things. There are some things, th- thank you, Elias. He, Elias, the kid, just like, yeah, I'm on this. Let's go. You ready to take some notes? Uh, there are some things in Leviticus 19 that are just obvious. It's, it's not super hard to see how this might apply to us. So look, for example, here's just a few, right? Verse three, each of you is to respect his father and mother. Can I get an amen from the fathers and the mothers in the house here, right? How do you, you know, you could talk, how do I do that? What's the best way to do it? But it's, it's not so hard to think about, you know, how to apply that. Or um, do not steal. Man, that's, what a tough one. What does that mean? How do I do it? Don't steal. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Do not act deceptively or lie to one another. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Do not turn to uh, mediums or consult spiritists. You are to rise in the presence of the elderly and honor the old. I'll let those of you who want to say amen, say amen to that right now. Do not be unfair in measurements of length, weight, or volume. You know, don't cheat people. You have to have honest balances, honest weights. So as you're looking at this list, I mean, I don't have, I don't use like a, an actual scale, but you know what we're talking about here. This isn't super confusing. You're smart enough to know what to do with these sorts of commandments. They were given to an ancient, you know, agrarian society in the middle of the desert, but you can look at the principles there and you can say, yeah, I could see how this could apply to my life. Don't lie. Don't steal. Honor those who are older. Okay. That's easy. And by the way, most of those ones actually just reflect the Ten Commandments. You heard a lot of Ten Commandments in there, right? Don't lie, don't steal, honor Sabbath day. What about something that's just a bit more obscure, where you come across, you're like, huh, I'm not entirely sure what this means or what to do with it. Here's an example. Verse 23, when you come into the land and you plant any kind of tree for food, you need to consider the fruit forbidden. Oh, it's interesting. It will be forbidden for you 
for three years, it is not to be eaten. In the fourth year, you get to eat the fruit? No, you still don't get to eat the fruit. In the fourth year, you take all the fruit and it's to be consecrated as a praise offering to the Lord. Finally, in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, its yield will increase for you. I am Yahweh, your God. So, okay, anybody with me? You're reading that? This is, again, this is one of those things where people read through Leviticus like, what in the world does that mean? I've never planted a tree. Plant a tree for, what's that song for America? I've never planted a tree. I don't depend on its fruit. I don't, I don't have to, you know, live off of the fruit that I'm planting. What does this mean for me? How would this, something like this apply to my life? Well, it's almost like they're saying, okay, we get to move into the land. We're getting established. I'm going to plant a tree. And the moment that tree shows up, I get to start eating the fruit. And God says, hold on a second. I want you to pause. I want you to pause, let the tree get established first. Then I want you to honor me. Then you can eat of the fruit of the tree. So I don't know that there's one exact right answer for this, but I'd love to hear from you. Uh, What sort of character qualities are being encouraged here by a commandment like this? What do you guys see? Patience. Absolutely. Patience. Delayed gratification. Absolutely. Um, Question, are we as Americans good at delayed gratification? No. We want it our way five minutes ago, right? So here the Lord said, hey, be patient. You're going to taste of the fruit of the tree. Just wait. What else? What else might there be in there? Trust. Absolutely. You know, this fruit, I need this fruit. I got to feed my family. And God says, what if you just waited and trusted me? Hey, what if you took an entire year's crop and just gave it to me? Anything else? Obedience. Obedience. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe we don't have some specific rationale given here and God just says, hey, I just want you to obey me. Some of you moms and dads know that move on occasion, right? Hey, I just want you to trust me. I just want you to obey So the question is, how might a commandment like this that was given to a society very different from us in a situation that you and I might not be really dealing with, how might this play out for us? I thought of an example. I thought of an analogy, okay? Uh, With all uh, due respect to anybody in the room who happens to work in, in, you know, real estate, I'm not picking on you, but uh, I could imagine working in real estate. Real estate is kind of a feast or famine sort of a job. Uh, real estate is literally like busy season, slow seasons, kind of like agriculture. And so uh, you also know like, you know, you get paid when the house finally sells. You might do several months worth of work and then boom, they cut you a, a check for $35,000 or something like that. So here you are, brand new real estate agent, brand new, uh, you know, brand new shiny real estate license. You work hard for several months. I made my first sale. Let's go buy a Tesla. Whereas maybe a principle here would be like, hey, what if you put that money in the bank, save it, tithe 10% of it, and then after another couple of sales, then you start to live off of it or go buy the new car or do whatever that you're looking at. I don't know. Seems like something like this where we're exercising wisdom. Again, we're not just copy-paste because we have different situations. They didn't have real estate agents back then. But there's different situations that the word of God still applies to if we will exercise wisdom. Can I do one more? Here's another one. Something that's just kind of odd. 
You are to keep my statutes. This is in verse 19. Do not crossbreed two different kinds of livestock. Livestock. Sow your fields with two kinds of seed or put on a garment made of two kinds of material. How many of you heard that verse before, especially the last part? How many have heard the last part of that verse from someone who is not a follower of Jesus, but someone who is maybe kind of a skeptic or a critic of the Bible? Oh, you Christians, you just pick and choose which parts of the Bible to follow. You Christians say that, you know, uh, sexual activity is reserved for a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage, but you eat pork, you eat shrimp, you eat shellfish, and you wear garments made of two different kinds of material. Anyone ever heard that before? I've heard that directly in conversation with people. Huh. Everyone's like, hey, uh, everyone check the tag of the shirt of the person sitting in front of you real quick. (laughs) So what's going on here? What are these instructions given for? This is just kind of odd. We don't really understand what's going on. Well, I think there's two things going on. And it has to do with honoring God's order of creation. Remember in Genesis, this, this, this language of different kinds, that reflects the language in Genesis where God made each creature according to its kind. He made each plant according to its kind. And there's something going on here that says God is the one who created all things. He's the one who orders all things. And we don't need to disrespect his kingly creation by mixing things up. That's what what sin does. Sin mixes things up. It disorders things. God says, hey, even in your you know, your, your animals or in your, your planting your field, there may be nothing inherently morally wrong with having a field with two different kinds of seed, but God says, for this people in Israel, I want you to be different. I want you to reflect my order, my creation order in how you plant your fields. Jay Sklar, a scholar that we've leaned on through this series, he says, this, this verse teaches that the Lord's holy people, his unique, special, set-apart people, acknowledge his kingship, by respecting the categories he has established. It gives three commands. The first two are alike in prohibiting crossbreeding or cross-fertilization of living things, different kinds of animals, two different kinds of seeds. By the way, not like, um, you know, different breeds of dog. That's not what's prohibited here. It's like trying to crossbreed a dog with a, a, a cat or something like that, where they're different kinds of animals. This is similar to the prohibitions in the realm of sexuality where the Lord forbids mixing together what he has created to be distinct. To do so is to rebel against his creational design and therefore his position as creator. So as applied here, the Lord has created the animals and the plants distinctly according to their kinds, Genesis 1, and to ignore those distinctions, to try in fact to obliterate them, is to rebel against the creator himself. So this has to do with God training his people to say, this is how he has ordered creation. This is how he has set everything up. It's about honoring God as the creator and the orderer of all things. There's one more thing going on here, though, because critics of the Bible, and if you go look into like the the wild west of the internet, you will find yet one more accusation that will show up at this point. Because there is a verse earlier in the Torah, in Exodus, the book right before Leviticus, that actually gives a commandment for some of the people to, in fact, wear mixed fabrics. Exodus 28, you are to instruct all the skilled artisans whom I have filled with a spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments, that's the high priest, you're going to make the clothes, the priestly clothes, 
to serve me as a priest, they should use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. What does yarn come from? Sheep. Sheep. (laughs) What does linen come from? Flax. It's a plant. So here, Moses is explicitly instructed that the priests are going to wear mixed fabrics. And then in Leviticus 19, it says, don't wear mixed fabrics. And this is, again, where critics come along and say, ah, see, the Bible's just full of contradictions. The Bible's just full of all these contradictions and for one group and for this and for that, and one verse says one thing and one verse says the other thing. And so, friends, I want to do my best to try to help equip you to think biblically about challenging things like this. So if I can push pause, I'll use this as a little bit of an excursus. When you think about the instructions that are given in the word of God, I want you to remember a few things. Number one, not every instruction is for everybody. In the example I'm using right here, there's one instruction given to the priesthood and there is a different instruction given to Uh, just kind of the regular, ordinary people. This commandment about not wearing mixed fabrics isn't some blanket moral thing. It's saying, don't act like you're a priest when you're not. It would be similar to laws that we would have about, hey, don't wear a policeman's uniform if you're not. I read something last week in the news about a guy who dressed up like a police officer and started pulling people over, and one of the people he pulled over was an actual police officer who then turned around and arrested him. That was an awesome story to read in the news. Okay? Not every instruction is for everybody. When you read the Bible, there are some instructions for men. There are some instructions for women. There are some instructions for the priesthood. There are some instructions for the regular folk. Additionally, Some instructions are situation-specific. There are some instructions given for when the people of Israel are out in the desert. There are different instructions given for when they move into the promised land. The very first Passover in Exodus has a different set of instructions because they were in Egypt than the last instructions given in Deuteronomy. There's a totally different set of instructions for Passover in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Why? Because the situation is different. You can't just write one set of rules to just be followed at all times. We have to apply God's wisdom, not only to the different people that we are, but to the different situations that we find ourselves in. Number three, some instructions are different for those who are Jewish, the family of Abraham, versus those who are not, who are, who are so-called Gentiles. I've referenced this several times. I keep going back to Acts chapter 15 because on the one hand, those of us who are not uh, Jewish followers of the Messiah, we know that there was a set of instructions given and I don't have to follow all of these Levitical clothes. I am perfectly uh, fine to be a follower of the Jewish Messiah to eat pork and shrimp and to wear fabrics of, of, you know, clothing of mixed fabrics. There is nothing wrong with that for me as a Gentile follower of Jesus. There's another conversation maybe for those who are Jewish and that's a more complicated thing that takes more time to kind of flesh out. But remember, there's not a blanket one-size-fits-all set of commandments for every person who's ever lived, for every situation that there ever might be. And lastly, some things are just straight up outright changed by Jesus. When Jesus shows up, he himself is the once-for-all sacrifice. And we are told explicitly, no more animal sacrifices. 
We don't do that anymore. Well, then why did we spend all that time in Leviticus 1 through 10, Pastor Aaron? Because it's awesome and you needed to read it. Because it all points to Jesus. But when Jesus shows up, he is the once and for all sacrifice. We are washed clean by the sacrifice of his blood. And so we don't follow those regulations in the same way anymore. What I'm trying to say is that this is a complicated thing. It takes wisdom. It takes a lot of knowledge of the word of God. It takes the Holy Spirit of God working within our hearts, and it takes the the people of God, the community of faith, where we wrestle with these things together. Well, I think it might mean this, or, hey, I kind of see it from this perspective. Again, you could not write a list, you could not write a booklet or a pamphlet long enough to address every situation of life. So what does it mean to, to have a holy life? Well, it's complicated. Understanding holiness is a lifetime endeavor. I do not stand before you claiming to understand everything in this book. I don't understand everything about God. I don't understand everything about myself. I don't understand everything about my wife or this church. I don't understand. There's a lot that I don't understand. Anybody with me? It takes a lifetime of devotion and wisdom and humility and study to really think through and learn about what it is that God is calling us to as people who are holy. So when someone comes along and says, well, you just wear clothing and mixed fabrics and you're not, da 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 it's like, man, that is such a, uh, 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 it's just such an ignorant thing to say, if I could be that blunt. There's good reasons why I can say, hey, the tattoo verse is right there with gashing yourself and shaving the sides of your hair and your beard. This is about pagan mourning practices. When someone would die, they would cut themselves, they would mark on themselves, and they would shave their hair and shave their beards. That's very different from the cultural practices of tattooing nowadays. That's about not worshiping false gods and appealing to them when somebody dies. It's very different than just saying, oh, decorating your body. Besides, all my tattoos are about Jesus. I'm not tattooed for the dead anyways. I'm tattooed for the living because he's alive. So, Sorry, that was free of charge. So it's difficult, it's challenging, but here's the thing that you can never go wrong doing, getting to the heart. Look with me at Leviticus 19, verse 17. It says this, it says, do not harbor hatred against your brother. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. I thought Jesus said that. If our friend Rabbi Matt was here right now, he'd say, you know, Jesus never really said anything new. God's heart has always been the same since the beginning. Okay, question for you. What is easier to not steal or to not have a grudge against someone that you're around? It's a lot easier to not steal. You just don't steal. Just don't do it. But boy, has anyone ever had someone that you have just been so frustrated with? Has anyone ever um, been driving in your car and you catch yourself having an imaginary conversation with that person you're mad at? I mean, I've never done that, but I've heard some of you sinners might do that, right? You ever find yourself being like, man, love my neighbor as myself? Where do I even begin? See, we could focus on all the external behaviors. We could try to write a giant list 
of all the do's and all the don'ts and all the yes and all the no's. But at the end of the day, what the Lord God wants is your heart. So I would say that the book of Leviticus and the the storyline of Scripture teaches that holiness is less about the rules themselves and more about a heart of love. See, if you love God and you are living in his love, then you want to start scanning the environment and saying, Lord, how can I live in your love right now? How can I live a life of holiness? How can I live a life that's pleasing to you? How can I live a life of honoring to you? You're not sitting there with a, you know, with a, a, a notebook and a clipboard and a pen going, okay, check, did not steal, check, didn't hold a grudge, check, didn't do this or that. You're just saying, Lord, you have loved me and I in return love you. How can I live a life of holiness that reflects your love? And you might be sitting there thinking, well, this holiness stuff doesn't sound like love. This holiness is about being different and special about how you live your life. But friends, the Bible itself tells us that it's God's love that drives him to make us holy. Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us. He loved us. Say it with me. God loved us and chose us in Christ to what? To be holy and without fault in his eyes. It's not just God sitting in heaven saying, I just want to make a bunch of people that look like me. I just want to, uh, you know, a bunch of robots who do my bidding. It's that God says, I love you. You will be more joyful. You will be more fulfilled. You will have more life and more love within yourself if you will come close to me and share in my holiness. This is why God sent Jesus Christ, the one who is the ultimate holiness of God. Jesus fulfilled the letter of the law in the Torah. He fulfilled every single thing in Leviticus 19, not just at the surface level, but from the heart. Everything that Jesus did was from a heart of love, first and foremost for his Father in heaven, but also for you and I, that he might die on the cross, the death that we deserve because of our unholiness and our sin and our rebellion, but that he might rise again on the third day to offer us forgiveness and to literally share his own righteousness with us. If we are holy, it is not because of anything we did. It is because Jesus shares his holiness with us. Amen? And this is the good news of the gospel. And now Jesus has ascended to the right hand of heaven. What's he doing right now? He is interceding on our behalf. Every day when you and I stumble and falter and we're ignorant and we're foolish and we're selfish, because I don't know about you, I still struggle to live a holy life. Every day I am finding things to repent for. Every day I'm finding things to say, God, I need your help in this. And you know what he's doing in heaven right now? Interceding at the right hand of the Father, saying, my blood covered over that sin and I am now making this daughter of the Father, I'm making this son of the Father more holy day by day and praise God he's way more patient than we are it is the love of God that drives him to make us holy and friends I would say to you on your good days God loves you and on your bad days God loves you and if you really want to know how to live a life of holiness you have to remember that God is just constantly pouring out his love towards you There's a pastor and author named Dane Ortland. We read this book together as a staff over the last few months. He said this in one of our recent readings. He said, our sins darken our feelings of his gracious heart, but his heart cannot be diminished for his own people. 
due to their sins any more than the sun's existence can be threatened due to the passing of a few wispy clouds or even an extended thunderstorm. The sun is shining. It cannot stop. Clouds, no clouds. Sin, no sin. The tender heart of the Son of God is shining on me. The gospel is the invitation to let the heart of Christ calm us into joy. For we've already been discovered, included, brought in. We can bring our up and down moral performance into subjection to the settled fixedness of what Jesus feels about us. Jesus loves you. He is drawing you near to make you more holy. And I plead with you to pursue that heart of holiness more than you pursue the checklist of holiness. Of course, we're going to have to wrestle with situations in life. What do I do with this? What do I do with that? How do I honor God? How do I? Yes, of course, we have to talk about the what. But at the end of the day, just trying to follow the rules and be a holy person does not bring you closer to God. The heart of love that he has for you brings you closer to him and he transforms us from the inside out. So I'm gonna close with this. Okay, okay. I wanna go live a life of holiness. Let me, let me put three things before you. How to pursue holiness, okay? And these are attitudes. These are character qualities. These are things you need to put in your journal and just pray about. Spend some time praying about these things. The first one is this. A type of gospel humility. Gospel humility says there is so much I don't know. Leviticus is hard to understand. Paul is hard to understand. Jesus is hard to understand. My fickle, sinful heart is hard to understand. I'm just, I'm trying my best to learn and grow with a bunch of godly people in my life and with faithful saints for the last however many thousands of years. We're all just trying to learn and grow together. And so when that objection comes, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's really hard. The Bible's really hard to understand sometimes. This is going to take a while. Cultivate gospel honesty. Hey, you know what? Even the parts that I do understand, I still mess up on all the time. Even the parts that are, you know, don't lie, don't harbor a grudge, I can understand that. I still do that. My heart is sinful. My heart is wicked. There's so much remaining sin that the Lord is just purging out of me and working on me. I trick myself. I lie to myself. And I'm... I'm, I just, apart from his grace, I would be a complete train wreck. There's a lot I don't know. Even the things I do know, I still mess up on. But then, a gospel hunger. A gospel hunger that says, I have been loved. I've known a grace and a love so potent, so powerful. I've, I've tasted of the love of God, so merciful, so patient, that I've just given my entire life over to him. I'm hypocritical, he's genuine. I'm a fool, he's wise. I harbor grudges and hatred and resentment and he just loves me purely. So Lord, I'm hungry to know you. I'm hungry to follow you. And I'm hungry to be changed to be more holy like you. Not because of my moral exertion, but because of the love of God poured out into my heart. And even right now, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, we're going we're gonna to literally do this, this 
this sacrament, this, this memorable memorial meal where we literally eat and we drink. And I would just encourage you as we come to the table of the Lord to think, I'm eating and I'm drinking the very life of Jesus within me. I'm not holy because of the things I do. I am made holy by Jesus from the inside out. I'll invite the musicians to come and Pastor John to come lead us in communion. Lord, I thank you that you have loved us so much. I thank you that our holiness is not something that we work ourselves up to and exert ourselves into, but Lord, you have made us holy because of your love for us. Lord, would you forgive us when we lose sight? Would you forgive us when we're prideful, sinful, when we have a lack of regard for your holiness? And Lord, even now, as we come to the table of the Lord to feast, to eat and to drink of your grace, Lord, I ask and I pray that you would make us holy like our God in heaven is holy for his glory. Amen.